Cinnamon, where you gonna run to? Cinnamon, where you gonna run to? Cinnamon, where you gonna run to? On that day. How to dream, cowboys. Welcome back, everyone. It's the HBO Boys. I'm James. That was Ryan. It's Lovecraft Country, season one or only season, episode eight. It's got a name. I'd rather not say it. This time directed by Misha Green and written by showrunner Misha Green and Iloma Ofordire. 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 That's pretty good. That's close. Mm -hmm. That was pretty good. Second episode in a row we've tried to say that last name. And I say we because this is a group effort, James. Yeah, you you definitely don't just let me take point on the hard names every time. You chose this life. I I didn't make you say that sentence. Also, you you were the flash through that intro. You're really getting... We're getting to the end of the Lovecraft country, and you're finally really ripping this intro. I'm proud of you. And as I say, every time this comes up, we're not teasing anyone with a, a unique name. I have a nine-letter ethnic name, which is hard to read on, on first glance, and almost never one has ever said it right on the first try. And so I understand the pain of anyone uh, yeah. who has a name like that in the and in, in speaks English, and sometimes uh, a name written because it comes from a foreign background in English isn't, okay, this isn't sentence intuitive. Is too long. To, okay. To two pronounce. things. No, stop. Two two things. Number one, I read your name when I was a child, and mm-hmm. I got it right the first I, time. Oh, oh well, we would need a time machine to prove that because I have no recollection of that. I have a perfect recollection of it, and I did an amazing job. And also, number two, you that is true. You say this every time. You you specify just to let everybody well, because know it's something that I'm world. a little sensitive about, and so I wouldn't want to be. Teased I'm just saying for you've this. said it a million. You're right. saying it enough times. I don't think you have to say it anymore. You don't owe the audience anything, James. I, yeah, I know. I just, I feel uh, anyone who's had that issue, I feel your pain. I don't think anyone should be teased for their goofy last names like I have. Not that anyone's last name is goofy. I don't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> My last name is two syllables. And the only thing people get wrong about it is they put letters into it that mm-hmm. don't exist. Mm. Dyslexia is the only problem with my last name. Anyway, Lovecraft Country. So, oh, actually, running- wait. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do it this time. Right. The thing that I just remembered to do, which is Patreon. Hey, mm. before we start this Lovecraft Country episode, please go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash HBO Boys, Boys with a Z. For one or more dollars a month, you can hear more podcasts that we have up there exclusively. I'm doing a solo Hunter Hunter podcast at this very moment that goes up there way earlier than I put it on the main channel, as well as in the future, the second half of the Call to Cthulhu campaign that we're going to have on the main channel, and the second half of which will be on the Patreon. Lots of stuff over there. It's like 15 hours of content that you get for one dollar a month what a deal love yeah, and, country. It, and it's not even names like i can't even say patreon correctly half the time i screw that up somehow yeah it's okay i've done the patreon call out like 10 times now for the hunter hunter podcast i am getting better at ripping it but obviously i mean the audience won't know because i'll have cut out all the times i messed up just then and it will have sounded perfect but i really did butcher it this time anyway this is the third time I've said this exact thing. Lovecraft Country! 
There's a running theme where Ryan and I like the kind of standalone episodes of Lovecraft Country, but then don't like the really serialized episodes of Lovecraft Country. But they bucked that trend, at least for me, with episode 8. It was maybe one of the most serialized episodes we've gotten since, like, episode 2, but it was also very, very good. Yes, that trend is... there's a reason for it. It's because the serialized episodes have been, in our opinion, generally bad, and the vignette episodes have been generally good. And this episode, I think Buck said trend because they smashed them together as we are getting to next week's penultimate episode and then two weeks from now's finale. They are starting to have to put all of this together. If this is a miniseries, we still have not been told whether or not there's going to be a season two. There obviously is not a second book for that to be based on, but, you know, Handmaid's Tale season two was not based off of a second book that they wrote. It was just made because, you know, they decided to. So obviously it's possible, but we're finishing up what the plot of the book is. So we're getting to a point where it's just reaching a climax that is occurring and it can't be vignettes anymore and all the vignettes are smashing together into episodes that have to do with the overall plot line so christina's gonna be involved and up until now every time she's on screen it's been kind of annoying but this episode yeah it was a bit more tolerable episode eight begins with a very very hot day in the summer in chicago there's kind of an interfaith protest going outside because emmett till who was d Hippolyta and George's daughter Dee's good friend Bobo, the real-life person Emmett Till, was just murdered in a lynching when he left Chicago. And just like in real life, he had an open casket purposely because his mother wanted to show the world what someone or some people had done to her son. This comes up in a pretty terrible moment where Dee asks what the smell is and Ruby realizes and then tells Dee what it is, as well the audience, that it is Emmett Till's recently deceased body roasting in the Chicago heat, which is um, goddamn morbid. Yeah, a-, a hell of a way to start an episode. Like, very, very shocking. Yeah, but then it does make sense after that for Dee to just be like, I gotta get the fuck out of here. Right, but I guess all this these are based in the reality that, that actually happened in Chicago back in the 50s. This is more or less how it played out. Not, you know, that D's not real, but more or less the situation that the characters are in is all based in reality. As D runs away, our party of Atticus the Annoying, not only is that alliterative, but it is correct. Ruby, whom is less annoying than Tick is, for sure. Montrose and Letty all split up to go find her as she runs into the day and away from both her family and the situation, which I get. She's walking down the sidewalk and she she rages at some kids who are just, like, minding their own business laughing, but she's angry at them for being happy on a, on a day that's very devastating for her. Yeah, she throws rocks at them like she's white-fanging them. And she screams at them, and this seems to attract the attention of a passing patrol car. Inside is the captain and leader of the local order of the Golden Dawn Lodge. What's the dude's name? Captain... Captain Lancaster, I believe? Yeah. Yeah, you got it, you got it. Him and his toady patrolman, Acost D, question her about Hippolyta, and then the captain casts some kind of bizarre, gross 
spell on her. Well, he like spits into his hand and there's like worms on the ground or something. It's very, very gross. Right. He puts the spit on her forehead. Super gross. Does a weird curse and then just leaves where, you know, I came into this scene thinking, oh, they're going to physically hurt D when in, in fact they did not do that. They just psychologically tortured her for the rest of her life, which is much better. All the characters are searching town to find her. Letty goes to her boarding house and she finds Gia waiting for her there. So she's now in America. Tick goes to find Christina and asks her how to do magic. And he wants to give her the key in exchange. But this is actually a bad deal because the key is to Hiram's broken time machine. So it's no good to her anyway. He tricks her. From her perspective... Every deal that anyone is doing with her is a bad deal for them, and she is tricking them. She has very high regard for her negotiation skills, and she shows Tick within this process a protection spell that he may or may not use in the future. Yeah, and and he he also asks her like what her end game is with the autumnal equinox, and she says she's gonna do the same ritual. That, like, Samuel did, and that Titus did, and make herself immortal. So, yeah, the last two guys that tried this, totally dead. I'm gonna rock it, for sure. And if what the Kamiho Jiha saw was correct, it will somehow have to do with Tick dying. Which he knows, and Christina knows, but they just aren't talking about it with each other, because that would be uncouth. At home, Montrose is trying to connect with D because he, as he's trying to explain but doesn't get to has been through something similar. She's not interested in hearing it. She locks herself in the bathroom, puts on the radio. There's this very weird song playing, like, let me in, let me in, don't knock on my door. Very, very weird song. I didn't like it. Why? Ominous? Yeah. The spookiness is compounded. She looks over to the cover of the book, and it's Uncle Tom's Cabin, and the cover of the book is, like, a white girl and a black girl, but uh, she, like, looks away and back to it, Like, the faces turn into horrible, scary monsters, and she eventually flees out the fire escape. I think this part, the D storyline that we are about to embark on for a good part of this episode, will be described as Jordan Peelian. It will be described as similar to the tone of Get Up. I mean... Get Up. Similar to the tone (laughs) of Get Out and (laughs) Up. Not Up. Us. God... Us (laughs) Up by Pixar. Yeah. Scary movie. Fucking terrifying. I have to decide if I'm leaving that in or not. (laughs) Because you said good jokes, but I'm an idiot. Anyway, I'll figure it out. So I think it will be described as it felt like Jordan Peele made those parts. He's a producer on the show, right? Yeah. But also, like, this is the exact same thing where something happens in Raised by Wolves And someone's just like, that is so Ridley Scott. Mm. I do want to point out one person is the showrunner of Warriors by Wolves. And another is a showrunner of Lovecraft, specifically Misha Green. And she wrote all this shit before J.J. Abrams and Jordan Peele got involved. And obviously things probably changed. But I think any credit that goes to Jordan Peele has to be doubled to Misha Green for how scary and disconcerting the D storyline is about to be. Ruby gets back to Christina's mansion, very distraught. One of, like, the rude white neighbors is yelling at her because he doesn't think she belongs there. But Christina comes back as a man, 
and lets Ruby back in. He bathes her. Ruby transforms into Hillary, and then they bang. But then while they're banging, Hillary explodes, and Ruby transforms back into herself, and they have horrible blood sex. And I think with a lot of a lot of things, well, not a lot of a couple things happen in this episode and have already kind of happened to show that like Ruby's kind of maybe turning to Christina's side a little bit because like she's, you know, aside from like maybe murdering her boss, she's also getting more comfortable with like the creepy arcane magic stuff. Because, like, if I were banging somebody and all their skin fell off and, and, and they were covered in blood, I would stop. Right, but it seems as though both Ruby and Christina as William are super into it. I mean, more specifically, this scene was for Ruby needing some physical and emotional attention to use as escapism from a day that was just awful. And Christina slash William is the person that she has in her life who is currently giving that to her and that she is taking it from her and him. So, obviously, I think Ruby knows it's not a 50-50 scenario where they're both gaining an equal amount from each other, but Ruby is hopeful that that is what it can become. Tick comes back to the boarding house, and he sees that someone has taken their shoes off in front of the door, which is a dead giveaway that there is a Korean in the house. Yeah, he knows it immediately. He looks at the shoes, and he's like, oh, shit. Although I gotta say, this whole, like, you know, and and Koreans believe that we in America walk around the entire house with our shoes on and, and only take them off to go to bed. But, like, that's never really been true. At least, like, I don't know if it's different in different parts of the country, but where we're from, I always remember, like, you go to someone's house, you take your shoes off. You go to your own home, you take your shoes off. In, in like, the foyer or, like, the mud room or even just, like, outside the front door. Yeah, shoes have dirt and shit on them. You don't wear them around the house. You get the house all dirty. We're not animals. Some people do. I don't know. Uh, no judgment if you're a shoes around the house person, but... Huge amount of judgment coming from me. <laughs> I don't think that's necessarily an Asian thing anymore, or if it ever well, truly James, was. James, on this side of the pond, over on the eastern United States in New England, I'm sending out a cone of judgment. Just know that. So very awkward, his ex-girlfriend is talking to his current girlfriend. He's like, oh, geez, I hope she doesn't tell her about any of the embarrassing things that I did while dating her or the war crimes I committed. And it turns out those were part of the conversation. But more importantly, the conversation that actually occurs is, in BT dubs, I am a nine-tailed succubus fox whom while having sex with you, almost murdered you after doing the same exact thing to 99 other men as they were climaxing, saw your death through my tails, and I have come across the sea to further warn you that you are going to die, and I don't want you to because I love you. And for some ungodly reason, Tick is mad at the entire situation and Jiha specifically, which doesn't make any goddamn sense. Yeah, she's like, oh, I foresaw your death and I came to protect you. And he's like, our love was a lie. Fuck off and die, Jia. And it's like, goddamn, Tick is an asshole sometimes. He's a dick. I don't understand it. What? Like, I don't get what this show is trying to do to the audience or specifically me, which is 
I don't fucking like this dude. I haven't for so many episodes now. And they are desperately trying to not change that at all. And then Letty goes on to be angry at the situation as well. Angry at yeah. Tick. And, and I angry thought this at was... Jiha, which doesn't make any fucking sense. I thought Letty was being pretty unreasonable in this scene. She's like, why didn't you tell me about the horrible monster that almost killed you during sex and then also the murder of innocent people that you committed in the war, Tick? Why isn't that something you just, you know, aren't completely open with to everyone? And I was like, look, right. I mean, Letty, I, maybe, I, maybe I it's get... a little bit difficult for him to talk about. like <laughs> For sure. I know. It's just I get her side of it and why she's angry a tiny bit more because it isn't lying, but it's omission, which counts. And by the way, your omission was that of you had a supernatural experience in Korea and they're not even getting to the war crimes part of the conversation. Like, who the fuck are you, by the way? Like, Letty has a chance to be like, oh, you're unlikable, just like the audience does, which I get it just a tiny bit more. Still very annoyed that she got as mad as she did at the entire situation. Jiha, who did not deserve any of that shit, and at Tick. But it pales in comparison for how annoyed I am at Tick as an entire character. I want nothing good for him. While waiting for the train, Dee sees a vision of of the two little girls from the book cover. They're dressed as like extreme, very scary looking, to be honest, like scary evil, yeah. racist mm-hmm. caricatures. And they're like coming for her. And as you said, they are a little bit reminiscent of like the little girl from us, the little girl monster from us, the tethered little girl. They don't walk anywhere. They dance everywhere. And specifically, they they, they do a racist jig everywhere they go. Yes. (laughs) And it's towards D with the goal of murdering her. So, great curse, Captain Lancaster. Scary as fuck. If you were trying to scare D, you are succeeding. If you were trying to scare me, you you also succeeded with that as well. Because, you know, actually, at the time and during my first viewing of this episode, I was not immediately terrified. I was like, this is weird. I'm not sure it's doing to me what it's supposed to be doing. But then in the days following, it like haunted me. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, 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 they did it. They pulled. They did that. Good job, Misha Green. Goddamn filling my nightmares. Back at the mansion, Ruby asks Christina if she feels anything about Emmett Till's death and also confronts her about her callousness and her white privilege. And Christina doesn't even really react and just confesses that, no, she doesn't care that Emmett died. She isn't interested in, in the issue of racial oppression. She's not really interested in any societal problems. She isn't concerned with the lives or deaths of any human beings generally and doesn't care much about anything aside from her own personal ambitions. Yeah, but, like, why would she be? Her own personal ambitions are not yours or mine. They're not anyone's in the audience. She's goddamn magic trying to become immortal. She recently saw her father disintegrate and her house be destroyed, and she is trying to overcome an oppression that she feels is only hers, which, to be fair, it could be. She is part of a magical society, and again, is trying to become immortal. Like, 
She's not dealing with the problems you or I deal with. Yeah, and I and I knew as soon as Ruby asked the question, like, well, yeah, Christina's going to say, no, I don't care about that because I don't care about when anyone dies because people are nothing to me. And I can bring them back to life, by the way, if I choose to with my goddamn magic. And she also, she Christina encourages Ruby to be the same way. She's like, you ought to stop caring about, you know, whether people live or die and just uh, live completely for yourself the way I do. Kick your empathy to the curve. Embrace the hubris that I do every day. But also, it does show an affection between them, right? Ruby wants Christina to feel a certain way because, one, Ruby is angry. The monologue that Ruby had was really good about her general anger every day for being who she is and the outside world treating her the way that they do because of her skin and her gender. Her oppression-based monologue was just like next-level shit. And she's like, by the way, Christina, and you'll never know that. You'll never know. Not only are you white, but you're goddamn magic, as you just said. Right, you're a magic millionaire. Yeah, so why would you care? And Christina's like, I don't know, good point. D goes to Letty's boarding house to look for Tick, but he isn't there. After Letty leaves, she finds old Woody hidden in the bushes on the side of the house, and she tries to investigate the car, but she gets chased away by the little monster girls. And and every time the little monster girls appear, that, like, knock, knock, knock song plays, it's very creepy. But it's very well done. Whatever child performers they got to play these monsters do a good job. They dance, like, completely in synchronization with that weird song. Oh, it's erratic and it's terrifying. And I was never a huge horror fan. Mm-hmm. I didn't like it at all. I didn't find it entertaining. I just didn't ever want to get into it. And recently, I've gotten much more into it. A lot because of Jordan Peele. Because his movies were... They were like a gateway drug into the genre for me. And I'm now slowly but surely becoming more of a fan of horror as it is. Mm-hmm. And... The horror parts of this show are done very well, like these scenes. Okay, well, that's very cool. I I would recommend to you the two feature-length films of Ari Aster. I would say, like... I've watched those. Okay, Would you like to spend five minutes discussing... Well, first of all, I I also sent to you one of his extremely famous short films, The the Strange Thing About the Johnsons. I hate you. I hate you so much for making me watch that. Nobody watch that. Yeah. I think people should watch Midsummer. <laughs> no. And you should watch Hereditary. Hereditary's brilliant. Hereditary, I think, is a better movie than Midsummer, but both are pretty insane. Those are good horror movies that people should watch. But yeah, the short that you just mentioned, skip that it's, shit. Yeah, very cursed. <laughs> How dare you make me watch? I'm so angry. I'm you can't I can't believe you even brought that up. Still very angry you made me watch that shit. Ugh, fuck. (laughs) Tick goes to confront Montrose, who explains basically that he decided to live in the closet for fear of persecution, that he witnessed firsthand what happens to, like, a gay man in the early 20th century and decided he wasn't going to live that life, and that he and Tick's mother had a mutual understanding, and she accepted him for who he was... And and it was never a matter of betrayal in, in that sense. Right. He described an emotional connection that was very real. We haven't revisited the theory that George is perhaps Tick's father and Montrose is not in a little bit. And we still don't know the answer to that question. 
Hopefully in the future that becomes a bit more clear. Tick then tells Montrose that Letty is pregnant, even though she hasn't told him. He knows because when Hippolyta was, was like time surfing, he was in the future as well, where he met his adult son, George, who authored the book Lovecraft Country, which we saw at the end of the last episode, which we thought was written by uh, Uncle George in an alternate reality. Instead, it's written by George Freeman II in the future. The copy of Lovecraft Country that Atticus has, he says that some of the details are different. Christina's a man. Uncle George survives Artem. Dee's a boy named Horace. And these are all nods to the in-real-life novel. Mm -hmm. And Atticus says that a hooded woman gave the book to him and that white people were rioting in the future, which is, you know, on point. I'm not sure who the hooded woman was, but white people rioting is on brand for a possible future that Tick was in. Although I believe this television show was shot prior to the 2020 so they were speaking of past riots and not perhaps current ones or even things that have yet to occur in our timeline but yeah it's interesting that the events uh the book that he's reading about tell the events of the show but the things that are different are the ways in which the show and the real book are different so it's very very cool cool meta meta wink wink d goes to the lodge to confront the police chief and he tells her that he'll lift the curse that he's placed on her if she goes and brings him the orrery. D acts like she's considering this and then spits on his tie and calls him a pig and tells him to fuck off, which was pretty cool. Pretty, pretty cool. But he doesn't give a shit. He's like, she's dead already. You don't have to go chase her. The curse is going to kill her. There are flowers all around his office and i believe they support the theory that somehow his skin is rotting away i don't know if it's just him or the rest of the police that are part of the order of the ancient dawn maybe perhaps they have some sort of pirates of the caribbean version curse where their skin's rotting away we recall in an earlier episode that his torso has a different person's skin sewn on to him. Mm. I believe the flowers are to mask the smell. D even says that this room and you smell like shit prior to her saying, fuck you pig, which was cathartic to hear. And so, yeah, I don't know what that's all about, but we'll have to figure that out in the future as well. Montrose and Tick uh, make a magic circle with Tick's blood. And and we find out very quickly that Montrose is dyslexic, at which point Tick says, why, geez, I didn't know that all these years. Any other secrets you're keeping from me? Which makes Montrose like kind of balk and make a face, but he doesn't say anything. Right. So he doesn't mention that he's probably not Tick's father, assumably at this point, right? Like, I'm not sure what other secret could be out there that had been foreshadowed for seven to eight episodes at this point. I assume it's the, I'm not your father, but you know, if it's something else that will be, I'm not sure if the word is interesting or audience abuse. At this point, like, everyone who watches HBO shows is basically just doing it to try to pick apart and predict what's going to happen at the end, right? So, yes, it's almost like you have to have those things in now so that people can watch the show and feel smart. They're like, haha, Which I've seen enough stories to know what happens in stories, and I predicted what would happen in this story. Right. It's a, it has to deliver that exact kind of satisfaction. They 
are positing that said satisfaction is exactly what every audience wants or needs. And if a show doesn't have it, then it's not worth its weight and salt. But I will say, to be fair to Westworld, the declining narrative that we have to watch when viewing that television show, I think it's that show that did this to us, right? It was that show, and to another extent, it was Game of Thrones. But I mean, the the progenitor of all this is Lost. And it turned out, you know, there was no grand plan for where lost was going so bothering trying to predict that wasn't even necessary yes but as i've said in the past them not having a grand plan for lost was not exactly their faults they wanted way shorter seasons they wanted less seasons and they got told they have to have six so they had to drag it out which is why seasons one through three are so good. And then seasons four and five are like, what the shit is going on? And then it all made David Lindelof write a series, his next one from back to front for HBO, in fact, which was The Leftovers, which everyone should watch because it's goddamn amazing. And then he would go on to make Watchmen. So he's proven that Lost was a kind of one-off, how did that happen at the end kind of thing. And by the way, J.J. Abrams was part of Lost and is part of this show as well. So And part of Westworld and, and everywhere. Yeah. And every goddamn thing that has ever existed, apparently. But this show is based on a book which has a beginning, middle, and end. So as long as they stick to it at least a little bit, we have to assume that the climax of this show will be not only planned out, but previously written and published. Montrose and Tick do the incantation in the magic circle, which should do something, but doesn't seem to do anything. Mm. This reminded me of the deck of many things in D&D. This might be too inside baseball for some people, but the deck of many things in D&D is you pull a card out. It says something that you have no idea what the effect is. The deck of many things is incredibly powerful and dangerous because the cards you pull out will either be really, truly horrible for you or really, really great. And sometimes you will pull a card out and the DM will be like, nothing discernible happens. You'll have to see in the future. Yeah, in the the Call of Cthulhu tabletop game, uh, if you go insane, you then have to roll like a d20 or something and get one of 20 different kinds of madness. Really? That's so yeah. cool. I look forward to that. In our Call of Cthulhu campaign, coming up soon. Letty goes to church to pray for divine protection, and Christina arrives as well. Letty offers her the negatives of the photos of the pages of the Book of Names, which Montrose burned, but she has pictures. She'll give him the negatives. In exchange, she wants to make Tick invulnerable in the same way that Samuel was invulnerable. And Christina says, no, I won't do that for Tick, but I will do it for you. Take it or leave it. And Letty Letty accepts that deal. And Christina, right there on the spot, says, you know, something in High Valyrian. And and a mark appears on Letty's skin. And I just gotta assume that Jesus over up on the cross, like, probably does not approve of the black magic in the church. Most likely, no. This is the mark of Cain that she puts on Letty's side. She refuses to do it to Tick, obviously, because Tick dying is a large part of her immortality plan. And this was who Christina was on the phone with. And it's where Letty was walking as Dee was being chased down the street at her house. After this, apparently, Christina goes to a lakeside pier and pays some rando goons 
to kill her in the same fashion that Emmett Till was killed and a few things. It's probably different if you're paying someone and you want it to happen, right? And then also, if if you're the goons and you just think you're being hired to, to kill this woman in an extremely specific way, you could just skip just straight to shooting her and then not doing the rest. Because what difference is it going to make, right? And, and, and then also, Christina comes out of the water having, you know, been beaten, shot, and strangled with barbed wire, and she's, like, laughing. She's like, ha, 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 what a trip, like... Laughing? I think she was laugh-crying. Okay. But I think it was, like, 60% crying, 40% laughing. And you don't get any dialogue from her in this moment. So you have to ask, does this brutality affect her in a way that Ruby wanted it to? You have to assume she's doing this to appease both herself and ruby simultaneously so did ruby get to her and she's clutching her mark of cain which i think she took off prior to this experience and then put on right as she was about to die which brought her back to life so she knew that she was not going to die from the experience but she wanted to feel it anyway so at the end when she's laugh crying does she finally actually feel something does she relate at all to what Ruby was previously talking about? Or does she realize in that moment that she truly never will and that her hubris and lack of empathy is just a 100% part of her personality that's never, ever going to leave? Either way, an incredibly harrowing scene that was really hard to watch, which I think was the point. D goes to the travel agency and she sets up to prepare to confront the monsters. And this is a bit like... We've been talking about horror movies. Hey, it's October. The very good horror movie, It Follows, and, and and Tipsy and Topsy are a little bit like that, where, like, basically a killer monster is following you everywhere you go at a very slow pace. Like, he's walking at a stroll, and so you could easily outrun him, but he's always walking towards you 24-7. So, like, even if you flew to California to get away from the monster... He would be, like, slowly walking across America to get you and and eventually catch up with you and kill you. And that's that's what this reminded me of. Mm, that's goddamn terrifying. Yeah, you should watch It Follows if you haven't seen it. It's very good. Very good score to that movie. Okay. And so she's, she's setting up and she's waiting for, for the monsters to come. And when they get there, she's, like, beating them with a lead pipe. But it, while they seem to... They could be knocked down... And, and and momentarily stunned like they can't be killed. No, this is a curse. A pipe is not going to do it. But to be fair, she was doing a pretty good job right up until, like, the rest of the people funneled in. Yeah, well, what fucks her up in the end is that Montrose, Montrose thinks, because he thinks she's swinging at nothing, that she's having, like, a psychotic episode. And so he grabs her, and then as soon as she's grabbed, she's vulnerable to being attacked. And we see that this is not in her head. Because one of the monsters, like, starts carving into her arm and the scene kind of dissolves on that shot. Very disturbing. No resolution to the D monster attack. No. No, not at all. So the curse is still very much with her. And we'll have to see how that goes. Apparently, Tipsy and Topsy will be with us next episode as well. Which I'm 100% fine with. They are goddamn terrifying and I'm down to clown with them. 
Ruby goes to visit Letty at the boarding house, and Letty tells her that she's pregnant. They're on good terms again. Letty tells her, actually, I am pregnant. Uh, you called it earlier. And Ruby's like, hey, by the way, Christina is cool. Magic is cool. I'm throwing my lot in that way. And and Letty's like, no, I'm going in the other way with Tick in the defeat Christina party. So a bit of a split here. Hey, fun fact. I've been saying the name wrong of the two dancing girls this entire time. Their names mm-hmm. are Topsy and Bopsy. And mm-hmm. I apologize for getting that wrong so often for the last 40 minutes. Yeah, and I didn't look up. I just trusted you. So the times when I said it wrong, I know I get accused of throwing Ryan under the bus a lot. But really, truly, that was Ryan's fault. You don't get accused of that. You just keep saying it because it's the truth. There's a knock at the door, and basically every cop in Chicago has showed up outside Letty's house, and the the beat cop is able to just, like, stroll in, but the captain cannot, because the protective ward that the medium put on the house in episode three is still in the doorway, and he can't cross it. And so he's like, okay, then, we'll just go. And they walk away, and about a minute later, as Letty and Ruby are talking, they just start blasting the house with hundreds of bullets, and Ruby hits the floor but letty just kind of sits there as the bullets glance off of her because and i don't know are they bouncing off of her or are they not even touching her they're bouncing off of her okay she has that invulnerability mark of cane on her cage now yeah she realizes she cannot be shot she's neo in the matrix and she's just like okay i'm just gonna get up ruby is still on the ground but letty's like okay f this i can do whatever i want she goes to the front door just walking and looking at a hailstorm of bullets being like i don't give a shit about any of those pieces of metal tick arrives at the boarding house and the cops immediately turn to shoot him And we get a slow motion shot of the bullet heading towards him. Letty cannot reach him in time to protect him. But just as he's about to be shot, a Lovecraftian horror emerges from the ground in front of him. And it begins to massacre all the police officers. It tears off the chief's arm and hurls him into the air. But as you mentioned, this is probably not the last we see of him because he's already like a crash test dummy made of different parts. So he could just get a new arm. Yeah, and the Lovecraftian horror is the Shogoth. This is a darker colored Shogoth, I believe. And and less eyes, and, and, he's, and he's got little arms, and like Tyrannosaurus arms. Yeah, they were in episode one, as you might recall, in Artem, and they also tore off a sheriff's arm in that episode as well. And as the Shogoth is just ripping apart all the cops, throwing them, like they're getting thrown across the screen. It is incredibly satisfying to watch. It was the most satisfying scene in this show so far. And we built up eight episodes to this moment. And then the Shogoth turns and is about to go at Letty and Atticus, but then stops in front of them and lets Atticus pet him, like when Jon Snow was allowed to pet Drogon. But this is obviously the spell that Montrose and Atticus did earlier on that they thought did nothing, did something, and it was this. Right, so Tick has now achieved some measure of Christina's abilities, not as much, like he's not immortal or anything, but he can do this at least. But I wonder if maybe this monster, because he kind of learned how to do this from Christina, it won't hurt him, but it also wouldn't hurt Christina. Probably not. So what were your feelings as you were watching that scene? 
I mean, that was a good ending. I, I, I Like you, I think the best parts of this episode were the parts that followed D. The two little monster girls are extremely creepy. They've kind of got, like, long claw fingernails and uh, these kind of, like, dead-eyed, wide smiles everywhere they go. And, and, and they, they move their limbs like they're on hinges. It's very creepy. I think they've been on a on a run here in the same way that, like, Raised by Wolves, the, the last three episodes that we watched and talked about and that I haven't yet edited, but will probably edit it by the time this comes out. They've been on a bad, not such a good streak, but, eight, but Lovecraft Country has been rocking it the last couple episodes. Mm-hmm, finishing strong. Yeah, six, seven, and eight might be the three best episodes of the show so far. I, I, you know, even like five, six, seven, eight have all been really good. The last not-that-great episode we mm. got was was a history of violence. Yeah, no, was five the National Treasure bullshit? No, that was four. Five was oh, the one th- with okay, Hillary. Great. Yes, no, that was... That was wholly not good. Yeah. But you're right. Afterwards, at least the second half of this show has been really hitting on good. all cylinders. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm psyched for the next episode. I got to say, you said you already watched the finale of Raised by Wolves. You said it's I good. Have. I hope yeah. it's good. I, I, I can't work up a lot of excitement to watch it, but I am excited to see where Lovecraft Country goes. My one sentence review, yeah. and you'll have to go listen to Raised by Wolves 10 when we come out with it next week. But my one sentence review of that was good comma a bit on the nose much that was that yeah. was my i'll expand upon that next week very strange to me the the, the ups and downs of, of of these two shows we've been watching because like after the first three episodes of lovecraft country were out and the first episode of raised by wolves came out i was like okay lit, lit, lovecraft country pretty good raised by wolves amazing and then that was just one episode now that we're eight episodes deep into both shows it's like oh okay lovecraft country really good raised by wolves not even just okay like it kind of kind of (laughs) bad like (laughs) yes one of those shows deserved to be a 10-part miniseries and the other deserves to be a movie but they made it a miniseries anyway because hbo gave ridley scott a bunch of money and he was like somebody make me a tv show i'm a directed i'm a director so i mean Again, you can listen to Raised by Wolves 10 when it comes out next week because I think the finale is redeeming in some ways, but we've been talking this whole time where the end of Raised by Wolves is going to be a hard landing to stick because of the drop in quality, and it definitely was. They did not stick the landing. They broke an ankle, but one foot was firm on the ground, and Lovecraft looks like it is going to be coming in hot. It depends on... uh, I mean, there are a lot of storylines still up in the air. Exactly what is actually going to happen to Tick. Is Montrose Tick's actual father? What's Jiha gonna do now? She's sitting around here. Letty's mad at her. Tick is mad at her stupidly. When is Hippolyta gonna descend from space in in a golden rocket ship to save everyone? At some point, right, she has to Dr. Manhattan in. So, yeah. There's a lot of stuff to look forward to with Lovecraft. I really do look forward to when it is on, as opposed to as I was watching episodes seven and eight of Raised by Wolves, thinking to myself, God, I hope this is fucking over soon. So, you know, they really have shifted. And again, Lovecraft is not without its faults. It had a few episodes that were truly, truly terrible. And I'm exaggerating. I you 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 say I'm exaggerating a bit more than you would, and you would call them bad, and which I understand. But they were torture to watch. But then it's really uh, I get to this end of episode eight, 
and see a cop flying through the air that is thrown by a Shogoth. And I'm like, oh, my yeah. God. Yeah, I mean, Checkmate. Lovecraft Country, really, really only two misses for me. Episode two and episode four were pretty big misses to the point where you and I were like, oh, every other episode is bad. But then, yeah, as soon as you got to the second half, it's just they're bad. They're batting a million. So it just took them a little while to find their footing, maybe. Oh, yeah, for sure. I hope I don't know if I hope it gets a second season. I guess it depends on the last two episodes. If it truly wraps up the story in a way that I almost hope it does. Like, you know, deep down, I want Watchmen to have a second season, but it wrapped up its story really well, in my opinion. And if it never does, I won't be terribly angry about it. I'll be slightly disappointed. Well, they couldn't force Damon Lindelof to to do a second season, apparently. No, he doesn't want to. Probably the curses that he received from Alan Moore were too severe. And and Alan Moore was like, if you don't do a second season, I'll lift the curse. And he's like, please, Mr. Moore, anything. Yes, the druidic curse will never lift off of David Lindelof uh, until he passes along and Alan Moore somehow does season two of Watchmen. But yeah, man, this show, I'm excited every week to talk about it. And I'm sad that it's going to end soon. And I hope they don't fuck it up. I co-sign that. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, it means a lot. And if you'd like to support the show in other ways, you can follow us on Twitter. He's at Westworld Ryan. I'm at James Watches Man. We've actually been getting a lot of engagement on our Facebook page, which we don't mention, but we have. So thanks for everybody who's checking that out. You could leave us a review on whatever podcast app you're listening to this on. And you could support the show financially for just a dollar or more. You would get bonus content and a patrons-only Discord chat. And Ryan will shout you out as he's about to do. Absolutely. And that is Hardboiled Greg, Nicole, Day 11 Podcast. James, watch my dong. Uh, I don't know what a dong is, but I'll look for one. It's a dong, but said cool, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Like a cool Long Island woman, the coolest people around. My mom's a dog in coffee. She's from Long Island. Right, like if Fran Drescher said the word dong. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. 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 Cliff Wilding, Hello underscore Yo, Atheism Unstoppable, Chris Wood, Brinkin, Day 11, Westworld, Craig Bachman, John Jers, Major Woody, and Carol Andreas. Thank you very much for the dollar or more a month. Patreon.com slash HBO Boys, Boys with the Z. Head on over there and give us money. We'll be appreciative of it. And then join us uh, next week when we will be doing Lovecraft Country Season 1, Episode 9, as well as the finale of Raised by Wolves. Does episode nine have a name that is yeah rewind nineteen twenty one and I say that with no no reservation yeah yeah if you guys want to know what season one episode eight's name was you'll have to Google it we are not at liberty to discuss and then hopefully we haven't run uh, the Call of Cthulhu campaign that I've written yet but we will soon. And and I plan to produce the hell out of it, and I won't I won't be editing Raised by Wolves anymore. So I'm, I'm gonna t- spend a lot of time making it nice, and I'd like to get that out. I'd, I'd like to say before Halloween. What do you think, Ryan? That's possible, right? Anything is possible. That's some susical for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Best musical mm-hmm. ever. Best one we ever did. Go join the Patreon and, and listen to the Hamilton episode, and you'll hear us talk about uh, that. A lot of susical. <laughs> And our time doing Susical, our senior year of high school. Goodbye. <laughs> oh.
Yeah. Bye. You know, James, I sometimes wish that I was JoJo at the end of Susical. You know, little mm-hmm. kid, full life ahead of me, living on a snowflake. Is it? Is he a who? I forgot. He's a who. Hmm. Who's on first? I, I don't know. I don't watch baseball. 